Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. It is one of the most Corky's going to be Murphy moments I've ever seen. Sex one. Sex one. <laughs> yes, Hector, it's possible. Yes. <laughs> Goodbye, you people. Because she, she's a messy human. She's a mess. Yeah. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 13. Here's to you, Mrs. Kinsella. Hi, this is Lauren. And this is Jesse. And welcome to another episode where we have a third chair. Third chair, will you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lisa Darden. I'm an actor, as well as a board member of the Fair Housing Justice Center. We fight housing discrimination here in New York City in the uh, five boroughs. And overall, married woman with a dog. Yes. Pretty much it. You're the true every woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I like to think so. And uh, what is your Murphy Brown story? How did you become a fam? When did you start watching? I was pretty young when Murphy Brown came out. Um, And I mean, it was just one of those things where is this a revolutionary show that I saw on TV uh, that I definitely could gravitate to, Um, even though she was this woman that was in her 40s. But to me, it was so revolutionary to see an older woman, even though she was a white woman um, and as a black woman, you know, there was differences there. But it just was so revolutionary that I just I just loved the show. But on top of it, I mean, amazing actors. So that was another thing that drew me to it. But just overall, just this amazing, funny show with this older female lead was really what drew me to the show. That's great. I mean, I think that's really what drew us to the show. When we were also fairly young when we started watching it. Yeah. The most amazing thing about doing this podcast, I think Jesse would agree with me, is we've met so many people who have a very similar story. That they were, you know, preteens when or younger when they watched it. And there was something about this strong female that made a lot of young women go, oh, I would like to be that. It didn't yeah. matter that she was an older woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's something we, we talk about a lot. It was very formative for our worldview because it was there during those times when we were young enough to not think it was strange. Mm. And that, I mean, we talk a lot about and I'm sure you can definitely speak from your own experience about why small movements toward further diverse representation is so important because being a girl growing up seeing empowered, sexually viable, and independent women made me be like, oh, cool. So when I'm an older woman, it, I'm not out to pasture and seeing yeah. that as an honest thing. So like, that's why putting more and more people, more different people in front of the lens is important. Yeah, truly. And, you know, it, for me, Murphy Brown didn't live a conventional life. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was a kid, like one of the things I would say is like, oh, I want to be the first lady of a church, you know? And then I thought as I maybe like even like six months after I said that stupid statement, um, I was like, no, I don't think that's what I want to do. I want to have a career. And you had really great examples like Murphy Brown who didn't have a child when the show first started, yeah. um, who spoke her mind. Um, people were afraid of, <laughs> you know, because she she was tough. And um, which is something that I can definitely, um, you know, lean on because I, I kind of have that tough attitude. Um, and so there were, there were some similarities there that I could definitely latch on to and needed <laughs> when I was growing up. Um, yeah, representation-wise, uh, I, I felt like Murphy Brown, the, the creators, did a an um, 
showrunner and such did a, a good job in trying to incorporate us. But at the end of the day, she was just such a symbol for me of just this tough woman that really I had a great career and lived life on her terms. You know, so that's what I gravitated to the most. I find it interesting that that this is the reason why you're you loved the show, because when I asked you who your favorite character was before we, you know, we're talking about you coming on, you said it was Corky. Yes. Corky's fun. Corky's fun. Yeah. Uh, But in a way, I mean, yes, she's a strong woman, but particularly throughout the series, she was supposed to be the sort of, you know, yin and yang to Murphy. Yeah. You know, so I I love the fact that that that's the reason you wanted to watch the show, but you still love Corky because as we've been going through the show, started to see Corky in a different light. And I had I think completely written Corky off. And now I Mm. see her so differently as an adult. Yeah. I'm very defensive or protective of Corky. And it's been so nice going back through this and being, and giving her credit where in a younger lens, things are, uh, it's a lot easier to stereotype. And one of the things I love about this show is how none of these people fit into a stereotype. It's Mm. that, you know, you see them at first and they immediately start breaking down these concepts and it's very easy to look at Corky's character and assume that she's going to be the foil to a Murphy, that she is the opposite and all these things, but she is so nuanced and she has so much growth. And I just, I love watching from an adult perspective. I appreciate so much the care that the writing team went into giving these characters that could so easily be written off as the boss bitch, the, uh, the playboy, the dumb blonde, the old man, like all of these different stereotypes and just blew them apart bit by bit. And you know what's funny, when rewatching the show to prepare, I realized also how much I loved Eldon. Yeah. Because anytime I would watch any of these shows with an all-white cast, like we watch these shows, uh, you know, Murphy Brown and, and Mary Tyler Moore and Sybil in these, in these shows, but most of them, except for maybe shows like Designing Women, yeah. like Designing Women had a... a uh, African American, yeah, um, actor on it, and um, as as a cast member. But <laughs> in rewatching the show, like when Eldon says to Murphy, "Oh, you dance like a white girl," mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was like because watching the show, I was like, "Oh, he looks like he might have some olive olive ish skin," <laughs> you know. Oh, like I, I actually, he was one of the people that I loved on the show. And it's because there was some sort of similarity there. And, you know, when he was dancing, like he really moved his hips and stuff like that. He's Italian. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he is. And from Jersey. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You know, so it was he was one of the people that I really loved on the show because I was like, oh, oh, okay, there's some ethnicity there. You know, so I like, you know, would gravitate to him a lot. But I loved characters like Quirky. I loved, you know, you know, Murphy's the anchor. And so she was the the pull, the original pull. Yeah. But it's like um, when you're a minority, like we love these shows and we knew how revolutionary they were and how wonderful they were. Um, and but it was kind of like trickle down economics for us, huh. you know, because. Yeah. It, although it was great for, you know, white women, um, it really didn't translate to us, mm-hmm. you know, but even even different things like quirky, like I can see quirky in myself, you know, in yeah. in like figuring things out, you know, but and smart, a smart girl, you know, but um, but funny and fun at the same time. And viewers liked her hair. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So there was that relatability there and uh, in, in that kind of way as well. Yeah. And now knowing the whole series. She has the biggest arc 
full arc, I would say, mm. oh, yeah. of the entire series. Mm-hmm. And she becomes Murphy, but she becomes her own version of Murphy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she's able to become her own version of Murphy because of the people like Murphy who paved the way yeah. for her. It's like that great kind of next generation is because Murphy and her peers went kind of that full third wave that they had to to take the men's roles away. Women like Corky were able to come in and retain their own femininity and you know style and still be the bosses at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And something I, you know, we've talked about is that the the show is undeniably a white show. I mean, like, yeah, undeniably. Yeah. But something I, I appreciate about <laughs> yeah. uh, that statement from Eldon from the her love of Motown, her when we have Aretha come in like this is that unlike many shows of the time, it's not uh, an erasure of people of color within the world around them. I remember so many shows from that time period where it was an all white cast and there was just kind of no acknowledgement that anybody else existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, while I'm not going to give white people a pat on the back for that, that reality, it is nice to know <laughs> that at least those lines were written and that music was highlighted. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of bittersweet because Watching the show and, you know, how, how much she loves the Motown and it's like it, it spoke volumes about Murphy herself. Mm-hmm. Get, definitely gave her some cool points, too. Um, you know, but then at the same time, it's like as as an African-American woman, like we want participation. Mm-hmm. Like we don't want an honorable mention. Yeah. And I thought it was great that Diane English, you know, had her love Motown so much and adding that to the show. Um, and and they definitely made attempts to include minorities like you would see them in the office and even the, the episode where they go to the all men's club. You know, there yeah. there there is an African-American employee there and um, there's a member of the club that's African-American that Murphy Brown speaks to. Um, so that's nice. You know what I mean? But you still didn't feel fully included and you didn't feel you just felt like you got an honorable mention. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and then a lot of times for African-Americans, it was our food and our music was the only thing that white society appreciated about us. Mm-hmm. Everything else could be thrown away. So it it was almost once again taking us for our music mm-hmm. and not fully taking us, yeah. you know, but you have to appreciate the attempts mm-hmm. at the end of the day, because at that time. It wasn't like now, of course, where we see like LGBTQ and we yeah. see, you know, all different people um, with physical disabilities on shows and, and just, just more of an attempt to be inclusive. So th- those those were things when rewatching the show was like, oh, like I love she loved Motown. But at the same time, like there was no black cast member. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it was it just felt a, halfway for me mm-hmm. instead of full par- participation and a show that you could feel like, wow, okay, we have a part of this, you know? So it, it, it's, it's bittersweet. Um, but, but she definitely got cool points for it <laughs> at the end of the day. Well, and that's the thing is like, it's a, it's a very privileged position to be able to get cool points for listening to another culture's music. Yeah. You know, like it's, yeah. it's a very nice position to be in <laughs> that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, speaking of music, oh, let's get. Um, we have one of our favorites for this. Well, first of all, I should say this is directed by Barnett Kelman. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written by Russ Woody. Something interesting, though, you know, the copies that we're watching are syndicated cuts, mm. not the original, unfortunately. I don't know if you noticed this, Jesse, but it says that Diane English wrote it 
And that is completely incorrect. Oh, I literally saw that when to write the note in my in my little run through notes and then was like, wait a second. And I checked the rundown and saw it had already been noted (laughs) by you. I was like, what? Because I confirmed it with uh, we are lucky enough to have many of the writers and people involved in the show at email ready. If we have a question, particularly Corby, who always has a, a lovely note for us. And so I checked with her. I said, hey, um. It feels like a Russ Woody episode. Mm. We've had guests on refer to him having written that episode. And she knows that Russ wrote it. It aired December 18th, 1989. Uh, So Superstition is the first song. It's by Stevie Wonder. It was a number one hit for Stevie in 1973. I realize we didn't actually talk a lot about Stevie Wonder as a person. We just talked about the song last time. Mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder has sort of two parts of his career. He has where he was signed by Motown at the age of 11. And he was little Stevie Wonder, but he had his money put in a trust, which I thought was interesting until he turned 21. And then in exchange, Motown would pay for his tutoring. So in 1971, Stevie turned 21. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was no longer little Stevie Wonder and he had to resign with them. And he had some demands because he was a big selling artist. So he wanted complete artistic control before he had been writing songs with other house songwriters at Motown. Uh, He wanted his own publishing and a better royalty rate. Mm. After that, between 1974 and 1977, Stevie won three Album of the Year Grammys. In 1976, Paul Simon, when he won, thanks Stevie for not putting out an album that year. <laughs> <laughs> so Superstition was released on October 24th, 1972. It was on the Tambla label, which is where Stevie had always had his songs released. And it was his 15th studio album, Talking Book. But this is sort of where the story gets a little interesting. And I never knew this. Guitarist Jeff Beck was a big, a big fan of Stevie Wonder, and he wanted to be involved with Stevie's songwriting. So he said that he would come and record his next album, any guitar things that he needed in exchange for a song. That song was going to be Superstition. And Jeff does say that they worked on some instrumentals that sort of inspired Stevie, but that ended up not being on this particular song. And there's only one song on that album that he ends up being involved in. Mm. But there was a little bit bad blood because Jeff was going to release it first and then Stevie was. But Barry Gordy knew that this was going to be a big hit. Okay. And Jeff was supposed to release it at a certain time, but he sort of dragged his feet. He didn't get in the recording studio and just kind of took his time. And so Stevie was under the impression that it was going to come out at a certain point that his album would come out in July. And so there would be a large gap in between, obviously, July, October. Barry Gordy knew different, though. Uh, So... (laughs) Superstition came out first. Uh, You know, Jeff was a little upset about that, but I think he also would say that it was kind of on him for dragging his feet to not record it. And he does regret that. And who knows what Stevie knew, but Stevie says, you know, I didn't know. I thought it was going to come out in July. And it became obviously this huge, huge hit. Every single instrument in Superstition is played by Stevie Wonder. Mm, Yeah, including, and I hope I say these correctly, a clavinet and a moog bass. Gesundheit. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, that sounds right. I, I couldn't like, tell you. Yeah. Yes. It's considered the most famous example of a clavinet keyboard. <laughs> also some synth- synthesizers. Tom Brehan of Stereogum, he believed that the song was an oblique criticism of racism or conservative policy, whereas at the time, 
Stevie said that it wasn't at all, but mm. later on has said that, you know, at the time you had Vietnam and Watergate and Nixon resigning and that he says that he feels that it is actually about being a black man in America at the time. Mm. But, you know, sometimes people will say one thing and then change their minds and then go back and say it again. Yeah. Well, and then sometimes for African-American artists, you can't give your true feelings at the time. Good point. Really good point. You know, the success of the of the song might be affected if you truly share yeah. the intent behind the song. So um, and he's a genius and, yeah. you know, and has been in the industry for years upon years, you know, starting from a kid. So he knew how to navigate some of those waters. So, you know, maybe he did change his mind, but it might have been just to protect the song so that it could get out yeah. there. Yeah. Knowing what you need to do to find success. Wonder went on to be the first Motown and second African-American musician to win an Academy Award for Best Song, which I did not realize this, for The Woman in Red. Yeah. Oh. I Just Called to Say I Love You originated in that film. Nice. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Stevie Wonder album? Do you, Jesse? All of oh. them. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I mean, he he's just a genius uh, overall. Um, and definitely still, after all these years, we'll be like, I need me some Stevie Wonder right now. Yeah. You know, just 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 the the way he can phrase things can calm you down, but still acknowledge. And that's one of the things that I love about Stevie Wonder. But hearing the these crazy instruments that he played, like that's his genius. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, he probably was pulling things out of the closet that like nobody played. Just made amazing music. So to me, just all of the albums. But I mean, we still African-Americans for our birthday, we sing happy birthday to you, you know, because that's just our thing. You know, he's just so ingrained in American culture, but in the black community, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine what he would have done before he was 21 if he had had full creative control. Oh, my gosh. Mm, Yeah. Like they were holding him back, apparently. Yeah. Well, I feel like I have the same thing with Stevie Wonder that I do with my very beloved Prince and Earth, Wind and Fire where mm. I just love them so much and they're so unique in what they do that I can't pick a single favorite, even mm. an album, because it's just what my body and heart needs that day becomes the favorite. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. they are transcendent. It's so funny you bring up the <laughs> happy birthday song. Uh, last year on the weekend of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I went to the Unitarian Church in Chicago being like, I just want to like be around some like open-minded people. And their uh, kind of anthem song for the day was that. Mm. Was that song? Because that's, I mean, that's who it was about. Um, but it was so great to see people celebrating in this kind of non-denominational celebration of this man's life with Stevie Wonder. It just felt like the most incredible mixing of culture and awareness and love and activism. And I was just like, God, I love this song. <laughs> It's so good. <laughs> yeah, but and then that's what music can do. You know, it bridges so many gaps. Yeah. And then half the time, some people are not even realizing what's happening, like how many gaps are being bridged. And they're like, wait a second. No, you know, I, I, I stand on this. And it's like, no, it's it's a universal language. And when you have geniuses like Stevie Wonder who can do that, it, it's, you know, it's he's he's just hats off to me. One of yeah. the the best musicians ever um, and best artists ever. 
Well, Superstition, Rolling Stone ranked it 74 on their list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Mm. It's We're about to get into like the episode itself, but the first thing I wrote was that it is one of those few songs that everyone knows in the first three notes what the song is and starts going into it. And I, yeah. I was like, like yeah. Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. You hear those first <laughs> chords and everyone goes, let's go, girls. Like, you hear the superstition <laughs> and everyone's like, very Like, you immediately start singing it to yourself. You cannot help it. You yeah. just know. It's extremely catchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's great, I think, for this opening because it really sort of, you know, kind of oh gets you into it. <laughs> Even though it kind of doesn't really have to do with the episode, I think. Well, we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> So one thing I do want to talk about also really quick is just mention is obviously Here's to You, Mrs. Kinsella is a, a riff off of Here's to You, Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate, directed by Mike Nichols, who's a friend and collaborator of Candace Bergen. And Candace Bergen was actually considered for the role of Elaine in The Graduate. Of course. Hmm. The original idea, because the book is about a lot of blonde, waspy people, which actually tested with Robert Redford. But they felt that none of these sort of gorgeous blonde men were the underdog. Mm. And so they ended up casting the complete opposite, which, of course, was Dustin Hoffman. Um, And Buck Henry, who wrote The Graduate, passed away. And also a guest star on season one of Murphy Brown. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. He's 89, though. So good life. Good life. But it's it's still tough. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we uh, should we go into it? So. As we discussed, we open in our opening montage to Superstition by Stevie Wonder. And uh, I call this the Odyssey of a Coin. It reminds me of uh, that movie 20 Bucks. Yes. So I saw the like red fingernails going to pay for something. And I was really trying to figure out whose hand that was, how I'd forgot. I was like, is that Mrs. Kinsella? Like, what is going on? Long story short, there's a pair of pair of hands with some red fingernails uh, paying at a what must be like a bodega. So real quick, I just wanted to talk about something. Let's go. Because I was curious if this was the first time maybe we saw condoms on television or if it would have been. In fact, I asked Corby if they had any pushback and she said no. What I found out is that the first condom commercial did not air until 1991 during an episode of Herman's Head, which Hmm. is the most 90 (laughs) sentence that I've ever uttered. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, continue. And this is where the Odyssey begins. Uh, for a pack of gum, and they happen to get a quarter back. We see them take the packet of gum away. They take the quarter. The next thing we see is a very male face eating a stick of gum, talking on a payphone, which I forgot about payphones inside bars, even <laughs> though we're in fills all the time. I just forgot about that as a thing. I see random payphones, and it's never a good thing when I do see them. But when you see a person using a, a telephone booth now, like you're like, oh, something ain't right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. And I forgot about the whole thing where like the quarter appears in the little slot at the bottom after you're done using the payphone. Mm. What I love is the the focus on the quarter in this Odyssey montage is that you see the hand just flipping the quarter and the fingers in transit to the bar, to the check presenter with the bill. They place the quarter. First, I was like, are you seriously tipping someone a quarter? <laughs> And then they put down the dollar bills next to it. I just remember being like, what is wrong with you, payphone man? <laughs> I was really invested in this opening montage, y'all. You really were. I <laughs> The Odyssey. The second I thought of it as an Odyssey, I was in. That's interesting. You love a good story. I, I have sort of mixed I feelings do. about the episode in general, which we'll talk about. But the thing mm-hmm. about this opening is it was cut from the original syndication. So I don't know it as well as I know other things. I'm impressed at the filming of it from Barnett's point of view. But I just, I just don't mm-hmm. really. I'm like, really? Did we really need? this i don't think we needed it no we did not need it and that's why i'm yeah. going in intense detail 
because it's so wonderful, but absolutely ridiculous. But technically, it's fantastic. Yeah. And that's what makes it interesting. It feels like the opening to like a 90s rom-com. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like stylistically and story-wise, it's just different. And I'm so fascinated by it. So we see the bills and the quarter being passed across to Phil. Phil picks up the check presenter, walks away. We next see Phil outside of Phil's. They're literally outside. He's crossing to some median that happens to have newspaper stands. The machines uses that quarter to get a Washington Post. Specifically next to he he foregoes the USA Today and gets the Washington Post. Good DC man. Then we see the the Washington Post employees showing up and they open the machine and then they take out all the quarters in the little tray, which I've never actually seen done before. And that was fascinating. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I'm just like, how how often do they have to clean that out? It's not that big. And like how many people get a Washington Post in DC on that day? Like, how often does this guy, this man I shall name Fred, have to stop by and clean out quarters? <laughs> I'm all about this montage. I need answers. Where's Fred? What is Fred's story? Poor Fred. The revival. <laughs> this is the story they should have done. <laughs> he drops a quarter. Is it embezzlement? Does he go to jail for the loss of said quarter? I don't know. That's the thing. I think they're taking that quarter out of his check. Exactly. Poor Fred. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. We're not going to have an episode today. We're just going to talk about the quarters. <laughs> it's the full conspiracy of the quarter. <laughs> Fred takes said quarters, dumps them into a bag very haphazardly. So, of course, the hero quarter, as we are now calling it, <laughs> drops out and hits the ground. Are we not talking about that Frank Fontana stopped a car in the middle Excuse of the street? Me, we are not there yet. We are about the hero quarter right now. Hero quarter drops on the ground and begins the most dramatic rolling through a sidewalk, through the shoe. many pairs of feet. Under the shoe is amazing yeah how many times do you think they did that i was like barnett yes <laughs> gorgeous it's like footloose meets an action movie like you're just got feet going the quarter is rolling it's still going at this very same moment we see frank in an fyi hat driving his sports car mm. happily through the land just like and somehow we didn't know Frank has like brilliant superhero vision. Yeah. Spots a rogue <laughs> coin rolling down a sidewalk while he is turning and driving. Rolls to a stop next to his car as he happens to stop in traffic, gets out of his car and picks up the hero coin. Clearly, he knows it's special. What he doesn't know is it has a curse upon it, which we Apparently. will talk about later. Hence superstition. <laughs> Hence superstition. There we go. So, I, I, I just want to say I'm glad it wasn't Miles. I know. Miles could not have survived the curse of the quarter. As a Jew, that would have been a really bad look. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, I get it. Oh, I get it. Miles stopped the car again. Uh-huh. <laughs> Truly, this montage was something out of this world. <laughs> uh, do you love Frank's car, though? Yeah. Oh, Frank's car is great. I, I a see why he gets laid a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, who's that in that car? <laughs> We have Frank in this very, again, very rom-com like victory moment, smiles and flips the coin into the air. And as the coin is flipping in the air, we cross fade to the elevator doors of the bullpen opening as he is still flipping that lucky coin in the air and entering the bullpen. So we find ourselves in the bullpen and Frank is in a very good mood. He walks in and Corky is over by the coffee with a Corky, Heidi Ho, top of the morning to you. Fill her up, please. And thank you. Mm, premium unleaded. Ah. Like he is just, it is like one sentence. He is in such a good place getting his coffee. Corky, what I love is this is one of those great moments when Corky's sass is on full display. When we get to see her, it's kind of a mini Murphy. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Frank, it's morning. It's Monday. Why are you so cheery? 
Well, apparently, Frank cleaned up at poker last night. His poor buddy Mike's kid is going to have to settle for junior college next year. He was hot. Which, I'm. this is one of those episodes where, like, I love you, Frank, but I hate you right now. In the most <laughs> loving way. And as luck would have it, he found this little beauty on the street and holds up, said Hero Quarter. And Corky at this point is sitting down with her, like, pink Corky mug, just so over his antics. And goes, gee, Frank, a quarter. Now you can buy that farm you always wanted. It is one of the most... Corky's going to be Murphy moments I've ever seen. Also, it's the last time we see her. I didn't realize because I hadn't seen this episode in so long. I know. That's mm, But I watched it and I was like, wait, where, where'd Corky go? And I didn't realize she was not in it for the rest of the episode. I, yeah. I don't think Here? there's been one where she's had such a small part. Even at the party. Do we see yeah, her at the party? Yeah, she's not at the party. Exactly. Like, I feel like Jean Kinsella would want her at the party. Yeah. Like, she's like, Let's like he loves his, you know, his ratings and his demographic. Like she is like a ratings hit. Yeah. And she's the one you want to have at the party. Yeah, she's fun. <laughs> she's gorgeous. From an actor's point of view, she had a short week, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, must have been really great. Seriously. Like, get it, Faith. Maybe she had a trip. Who knows? Mm. Well, Frank says, you know, she can joke if she will, but it was heads up. That's a universal sign. And then he spins it on the table and does the thing where he like licks his finger and touches his button and goes, hot. <laughs> Like, I want to play poker with him now just to see him wilt. <laughs> Luckily, my beloved Jim Dial enters. Morning, all. Great idea, Frank. Frank is in mid-sip and goes, huh? Which, what I like about the way that he says what is like, he's clearly very open to the potential that he had a great idea he already forgot about because it's just, <laughs> he's having that moment in life. Yeah, his ego is at full force right now. Full force. And Jim points out that, yeah, it's, it was a great idea for him having those young men rotating his tires while he's at work. Seems Frank's luck has run out. <laughs> and goes, rotate my tires? Because yeah, hard workers. They've even taken the tires completely off the car. Give me their number. And Frank sprints past Murphy, who is arriving at the elevator, to go back down. We all know he's about to have a hard day. <laughs> As Murphy's walking in to her office, we meet the new secretary. Lauren, who's the new secretary? That would be a cardboard cutout of Dan Quayle. Oh, a celebrity sighting. Ding. <laughs> Ding. What I love is she stops sees it and just turns to the not the gang but the other workers in the bullpen and just goes bet he can't type either also art's our first dan quayle mention of the entire season when he uh -huh. was mentioned almost every episode in season one uh-huh so murphy heads into her office very closely followed by a frantic looking miles miles scurries into murphy's office in a complete panic I love that Grant, his body is even sort of hunched over. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just the speed. You're like, oh. something is up with him. So he has to talk to Murphy, but Murphy is just way too busy. She's not really there. She she has to plan Jean Kinsella's birthday party. By the way, when Jean later on says it at his 60th birthday party, I really was guessing it was more like his 70th, mm -hmm. which I think mm. just really shows how age has changed so much today. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say also relative age to Murphy. Oh, that too. Yeah. Oh, and his wife, who yeah. is Murphy's age. Yeah. Yeah. So we found out later it is for his 60th birthday. Miles needs to talk to her. It's something very personal. Um, and Murphy advises him, as she does everybody, which we all know is the smart thing to do, <laughs> mm. is that she should not get involved in personal problems. Uh, she never does. Yet everybody comes to her for advice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe it's because they trust her. Because she's like such a smart, strong, capable woman. I don't know what. She doesn't exactly have a history of being a good judge of anything. Yeah. <laughs> but women like her, like that's who you want to go to. Yeah, I guess but so. But then like I felt like she kept saying like, 
that's not my advice. That's not my advice because at the end of the day, like you get blamed for it. Yeah. If it doesn't go well, you get blamed. I worried mm-hmm. also that she was so used to giving bad advice that she was really worried about people like taking it. Mm-hmm. But it always cracks me up season after season where everyone's like, Murphy, I need your advice. I'm like, really? <laughs> she does not make the best life decisions. No. <laughs> Have you not learned? No. no. It's not a good thing. No. But I love how she really got into it when it got juicy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was straight up feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Tell me what's going on. But when it gets juicy, I'm like, mm, fully leaned in. It's so that, I thought it was so cute. That turning point is the why Miles, you little jackhammer. That's the <laughs> oh moment. Oh, my God. That like, line. <laughs> yes. Because she he she's a messy human. She's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. She's surprised. Yeah. Like, she, you know, she knows Miles pretty well, but I, I'm sure she doesn't see him as sort of this sexual being, you know, not to mention how guilty he feels, mm-hmm. you know, that this does not seem like something that he would do. I think that if Corky came in in the same situation, she would be like, oh, yeah, just because it's interesting. Whereas Frank came in and was like, yeah, I had sex with this woman last night. He, she'd be like, OK, cool. Because he's freaking adorable. He's adorable. It's like you want to scoop him up and be like, it's not that bad. Relax. Well, you don't look at Miles and think of virility. No. Because, yes, of, no. because of the, the stereotype. I'm Grant Shaw, virility. Yes. But like the, the stereotype <laughs> of Miles' neurotic, tiny little self is that you know, he's a little boy. So like this like kind of impressed quality that she has is like, oh, maybe the boy's become a man. The only thing that sort of gave me pause, and I think this might be... One of the many reasons why I never really loved this episode and I haven't seen it in a long time. Brand is great in it and Candace is great in it. Uh, and I'll talk about later some of the issues that I wish that they had delved more into, even though I sort of hate that as a criticism to be like, well, I wish you'd done this. But I do want to talk about it in this capacity. A lot of his guilt to me felt like Catholic guilt yeah. and not Jewish guilt. And that really threw me off. Okay, that's so funny you say that. Is that interesting? Okay, what are we Yeah, I say? have a moment in here where I say that there is... Well, at the end, essentially, him and Frank are literally like Jewish guilt and Catholic guilt going toe to toe. That is true. At the end, I did go, okay, I see this. And yes, you know, we don't really believe in hell, but there is sort of, you know, kind of some very religious people have sort of a version of it and things like that. So it depends on like how religious you are and what kind of Judaism you you believe in. But technically, we don't really have a hell. Mm. Uh, At least I was not brought up with that. And so when he... He talks about it from sort of a moral point of view. I was kind of taken out of it a bit, but that also might be just my experience because there are Jewish men on staff of the show. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's all written by people who weren't Jewish. Yeah. Hmm. But he's just an erotic person in general. So mm-hmm. he feels bad about everything. So maybe it's just, you know, again, it's a comedy. It's heightened. Yeah. I thought it was super cute when he was like, they used every inch. Oh, that <laughs> was hilarious. Yes. <laughs> I will never look at a luggage cart the same way again. <laughs> oh and I was like, gosh. honey, she used every inch of the hotel room. <laughs> Yes, she did. You, you just, you know, follow her lead. Well, my <laughs> favorite my favorite part is when he goes, she was old, <laughs> at least 40. And Murphy's like, I don't have time for you right now. <laughs> but also like kudos to the adult woman, the mature woman who knows her body, knows what she likes and used mm-hmm. every inch. Well, that's yes. the thing that we're going to get to later is I wish that Lois was in it more. I know. I just, there was so much testosterone. Yeah. It's just men talking about women. Yes. So Miles went to this broadcast convention in Boston. Uh, he went into the bar. Uh, although I wrote bar and I realized he said cocktail lounge, which to me felt like a very old term. Like, I don't think anyone says cocktail lounge anymore. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, they do. Do they? Okay. Do they? Yeah, because I, I mean, I know from 10 years of working in New York City, like that's a very specific job you can get. So uh, he was looking for nuts, cappuccino and pistachios, 
to be specifically. And I was like, Miles is a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all he went in for. And he didn't think that he'd find a woman wearing a red and black knit thing and perfume that just went up his nose and just pulled him in. Grant is really, really great in this scene. Um, but still, Murphy could care less until he mentions that they ended up, quote, where the rooms are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His phrasing in this episode are actually pretty hilarious. They Which are. He's so pure. Brings us to Miles, you little jackhammer. Miles is just crazed because he has never had a meaningless one night stand and he thinks he's going to get killed by a truck. Oh, sweetie. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, I love, I think at one point he, he's like killed by a truck and they'll all look down and go, he deserved it. <laughs> So, so this is when Murphy, as, as Lisa pointed out, it really gets her attention. She sits on the edge of her desk. She wants to know every detail. She wants to know what he was wearing. Yes. And this is the way that Murphy is looking at Miles, like, you know, you little dog. Like, she's just like, she's like proud of him. He all of a sudden became very interesting to her. Exactly. Yes. He said that they were animals, that they used every inch of the room, including, as we mentioned, the folded luggage rack. Whoa, Miles. Her name was Leona. She was knowledgeable. She was older. Old. At least 40. I'm busy, Miles. That actually was my biggest laugh of the entire episode, I have to say. There's a second one in the next scene. I, I literally cackled. <laughs> so Miles just sort of wallows in self-pity that he deserves it, um, that he's no one to blame but himself. Murphy wants to be sure that, you know, he took precautions. She had a variety pack, probably the variety pack at the beginning that we saw being sold. So Murphy really doesn't think that there's anything wrong. You know, no one got hurt. Miles says that he used a fake name, so there's no way that she can find him. Murphy pries the name out of him, and it's Hector, <laughs> which reminded me of Anthony Weiner's online alias, Carlos Danger. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. A Jewish man using a uh, Latina name. <laughs> yeah. But at least it wasn't Hector Danger. Oh, Miles, he seems okay, you know, it's still going to plague him all week until he goes to temple. That's the thing. Like, I feel like, I don't know, go to temple and pray for yourself. It sounds like going to confession. I don't know. It's again, this felt a little Catholic to me. It did. I may be wrong. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then he leaves and she goes, see you around, Hector. So we cut to the a very large party in Murphy's home. We come in the moment where uh, Jean Kinsella has just triumphantly blown the candles out of a cake to applause. I love the idea of the boss's birthday party, like that everyone is there and they're all dressed up and everyone's like, yay, you did it. <laughs> like there's just so much polite waiting for him to blow out candles. Don't fire me. I love you so much. At that moment, Murphy, the hostess with the mostess, she's in a great dress. It's like yeah, black yeah. long sleeve. It's got like gold on the cuffs, gold on the hem. And she's got a gold necklace. She's gilded. Uh, so she raises a glass. Uh, she knows she can speak for everyone in saying that Jean is not only a great friend, but the VP of network news. And everyone <laughs>, laughs because <laughs> boss's party. Um, she says, happy birthday, Jean. Everyone echoes, happy birthday, Jean. Jean <laughs> uses our beloved moniker. Brownie, what can I say? Everyone. And he does this thing where he like looks around at everyone and then does a really doofy little thanks and then wants to get started on the cake i've never seen gene be so doofy he's very doofy in most of this episode i have to say right i was like gene what where is like the gene kinsella i saw before i mean i like it i like seeing that he's not always intimidating but it was just i was like who are you right now so gene wants to get started on the cake he starts to go in murphy makes her way over to jim who looks a little sullen up against the wall and jim i have written this verbatim says oh sure for you you're not the one who got stuck picking out Gene's gift from the office. He'll be opening it any minute now, and it'll happen. He'll take it out of the box and try to pretend he likes it. And in his mind, he'll be saying, and then Charlie Kimbrough does the best impersonation of Gene Kinsella. Like his voice just very subtly changes into Gene Kinsella, and it's genius. 
what the hell is this? An electric towel warmer? Couldn't they find anything else more asinine or, or what? The, it was a store all out of, of talking bathroom scales? And everyone will see through him and they'll all turn to look at me and points at himself. And Murphy, very unhelpfully, just turns and goes, you got him an electric towel warmer? Jeez, Jim. And as they're cutting away, Jim just, you almost miss Jim just going, oh, God. So heartbreaking. Poor thing. Buddy, he tried so hard. I know. But I feel his anxiety, though. Like, when you buy a gift for the boss, yeah, and then it has to be opened in front of everybody, and you're just like, goodness. And then it's the worst when no one helps you with yeah. getting the gift on top of it. Like, if you can bounce some ideas off of people, then uh-huh. cool. Because you're responsible but. for everybody's thoughts and opinions and then yeah i yeah. can't imagine and then you got to open it in front of everybody and then if it doesn't get the big like oh wow great i really like it and you get the fake like oh thanks you know like it's so it's, it's depressing it's hard i'm okay much like why do you go to murphy for advice who would g- tell jim of all people to be the one to buy a gift to represent the office well he is senior anchor but like really he's always Jim? the head but he's not the one no he, <laughs> my beloved Jim no I would ask Corky exactly yes. to, to get the gift and like that's why I'm like okay maybe it was like a hey in the spirit of equality a man can go buy the damn gift this time and I think maybe good people, point maybe they assumed that Jim being another like older man of broadcasting would have gotten something sensible for an older man of broadcasting like a wallet or a tie clip or you know whatever but poor Jim obviously is overwhelmed and then, you know, and Doris wasn't available to go with him. You know, so as Jim is in the middle of a full meltdown in the corner, we uh, cut over to Frank, who's over by the uh, the bookcase and in the middle of telling us very sad tale to a new woman. Uh, we don't hear her name. Beautiful off the shoulder, black velvet dress. Great nice. earrings. Mm-hmm. She looks mm-hmm. great. I mean, setting up for like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> She gorgeous. And Frank's in the middle of saying that, you know, he's usually not the one to complain. But after a day like this, you know, after he fished his keys out of the sewer grate, he went to the cleaner and they had lost three of his favorite suits. And this is when he notices the woman. He goes, oh, am I boring you? The poor woman just gives us very valiant. No. And without skipping a beat, he just launches back in to talk about how his car blew a valve. And she finally interrupts him by going, Frank, Frank, your egg roll is leaking. Frank's not having a day. (laughs) <laughs> what I love about this is that it really sets up that like everyone would know that she ever mm-hmm. and just like how her husband is so not in tune with her. Nope. Or anything that's going on. Because I got the impression. See, here's the thing that I miss about not having Claire Peck in the rest of the episode. She's good. She's great. But you can tell in those few lines, she's really good. She's good. Yeah. And I would have liked to have had her more in the episode for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. which we'll go into in a moment. But I just got the impression that it's not that she doesn't like Frank in this situation. I don't think she really likes Frank in general. Yes. I mean, that's a great thing about setting this up and then having the assumption of Frank later is that you can see one that clearly he does not float her boat. No. And that she's kind of like just think he's a thinks he's a mess and is just very platonically listening to him being a good, you know, wife of the boss. And also he is not looking at her as a viable option. And this is Frank, who like anytime there's an attractive woman nearby will be, you know, flirting in some form. Like Frank is also clearly aware of a boundary that he is not crossing. So like there is no attraction happening in this moment. Obviously, Gene is nowhere to be found at this moment. He is not with his wife. He is not paying attention to her and her body language. He probably hasn't paid attention to her body language in a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She has needs. And I just wish that we had 
had her. And I think yeah. it would have been a really great sort of contrast, kind of like in the novel episode. I don't know if you remember this because I know I haven't sent you season three yet. Yeah. But there's an episode where Jim writes a novel and it's very obvious that, at least subconsciously to him, one of the characters that his his character in the book has sex with is Murphy. Mm-hmm. And he can't see it. And realize he has these oppressed feelings, oppressed feelings about Murphy. And they break up into little groups and you have sort of Porky and Murphy with the female point of view and then the guys with the male point of view. It would have been great if Lois was in this and then Murphy was trying to figure out everything between the two of them. Mm-hmm. I feel like it would have been more even and I would have liked to had sort of the female point of view in this mm-hmm. instead of it just being testosterone guys talking, like you said, talking about women. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate to give criticism like this because what we had, I can see is really good. You yeah. know, Miles is great. Uh, the acting is great. There's some good moments, but it just fell flat for me because I felt something was missing. Mm-hmm. And either that's because I didn't laugh as much or just that I just feel like I think I would have enjoyed it more if we knew more about Lois. Yeah. And also I I mm-hmm. wanted, I mean, this is the reason why they get Miles out of the room, but I wanted to see the side of Lois that was the like s- sexually viable vixen that like it kind of destroyed Miles in a hotel yeah. room. Like, you know, I wanted to see that side of her. There was somebody who had agency and independent and like had these needs to be filled as opposed to being spoken about as, yeah, just a woman who couldn't keep it in her pants. I mean, she didn't have to be there. And I, I yeah. wonder if maybe she was cut from some of it. Mm hmm. He could have just found a picture of her in Jean's office. Mm-hmm. That would have been fine. We didn't even have to see her. So I was really kind of surprised. I'm glad. We, so I am glad that we did see her. Well, and I think they set her up so in, in an interesting way mm-hmm. in that, no, Frank is not the type she would be interested in. That's true. We did need to see that. But also you have Miles who would be the more probably a generous lover, mm-hmm. um, be more in tune with listening. Cause they said he, he even said like, we talked a little or something like that. Yeah. And, and she, I enjoyed her, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, you know? And so it's interesting because she really was a woman who needed attention. Now, of course she wanted it from her husband, but she wasn't getting it. Mm-hmm. So she went to a guy like Miles who I, I found funny that he was this uh, wild sex animal with her, but then in the room with his boss and her, he couldn't physically leave the room <laughs> and was shut down. And Murphy had to get him out. Um, so I like that juxtaposition as as well. Mm-hmm. But um, but I I felt like even though her smart her part was small, Lois definitely they set her up as someone who was like a full human being who yeah. had needs. Yeah, and I think the actress helped with that as well. I do also. I love. I love the uh, kind of red herring of meeting her as just some no-name woman and that we don't see her standing next to Gene while he blows out mm-hmm. the candles and like that they don't, yeah, that they keep it kind of, mis- like, because it could have just been another office mate that Frank was talking to and Miles walks in and then you see this woman talking to Gene and that turns out to be her. The fact that they gave her a moment of personality with Frank was really satisfying that it wasn't, we didn't know she was Mrs. Kinsella right away. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Miles, at this moment, Miles finally arrives to the townhouse and Murphy greets him and goes, Miles, how nice of you to show up. You missed all the fun. The shrimp balls are dying and I caught Al Henderson from sales going through my medicine cabinet. I hate giving parties. Uh, and what I love is Miles is like, not to fear, Miles is here kind of energy. And I also noticed she has like, a service staff working the party. Yes, that was very specific. Right, he takes his mm-hmm. coat off and a man in like, you know, gloves and a, and a tux like takes yeah. it and puts it in the closet. She went fancy for Jean. 
which is what I love. She's not hosting the party as much as she paid people to run the party in her house, which is. I think that was very smart. Mm-hmm. But she, but and hosted a party in a suit. Like she wasn't in a like near a negligee, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, floating yeah. around like she was still Murphy yeah. in her suit that was immaculate mm-hmm. and, you know, with staff. Yeah, is, I love it. She's know, just like, I know I know my skills. So he says he's in a party frame of mind. Watch the master <laughs> mingle. Where's the birthday boy? And he walks into the living room and, and he is in full swagger. Like as much as Miles can have swagger, he is in full swagger. Yeah. He's clearly he's got some good. pep in that step. And then he halts and he turns around and faces Murphy and says, oh, God, she's here. She's here to say that I'm not going to do a full Miles impersonation because it would probably hurt me. But his voice goes oh from God. normal kind of Barry tenor mile into like the ultimate falsetto throughout this scene. Mm-hmm. It just gets higher and tinier. I'm guessing that Grant Shaw never smoked. No. Just to guess. Yeah, just beep, 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 beep. His range is massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Murphy asks, who's here? And he says, her, the woman, the sex woman. The way That's he my says favorite. it. The Isn't it woman. just like the best? The sex woman. The sex woman. <laughs> And I love it because he's also doing things where his face is getting more and more desperate and pulling apart and his voice is just getting higher. The sex woman. Oh I can't even do it. It's like, he's like, the sex woman. And Murphy's like, you're kidding. He's essentially in, in almost what I thought was his full falsetto, but not quite. And he says, black velvet dress, brown hair. To which Murphy says, that's no woman. That's Lois Kinsella. <laughs> I wrote in my notes, that's no woman. That's my wife. <laughs> that's my wife. That's a space station. And he goes, Kinsella. She said, Kinsella. She says, Miles, you slept with the boss's wife. And he said, and what I love is he just looks at her and he goes, that can't be possible. Her name is Leona. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Hector, it's possible. Yes. <laughs> I was expecting her to hit him. I, I feel like in later seasons, this would be when she would hit just him. smack him. <laughs> Right. They're not there yet. And she says, it's not good. It is not good at all. But she's like, okay, she hasn't seen you. You should get out of here before she does. Again, good decision making on Murphy's yeah. part. Mm-hmm. And this leads to Miles going, good, good thinking. You're good at this. I see the door. I can't move my legs. And he looks down desperately. They're both just looking at his feet at this moment. And Murphy's just like, what is wrong with you? He goes, I'm paralyzed. And then in the most high pitched mouse voice yet, he sounds like he's coming out of the fly. Oh, Murphy. <laughs> It is just the tiniest help me. Oh, my God. He's so good. Like, so damn funny. mm -hmm. I think it's because he's so good at it. People don't realize how talented he is and how much effort goes behind doing that so well. Yeah. It's it's a skill. It is such a skill. Yeah. And he heightens it just Mm -hmm. enough. It's not necessarily reality, but it's grounded in reality. So we don't question it. But you still see someone you know. Murphy just puts her arms around him. Come on, Miles. You can do this. And then she starts to walk him to the door and then pitches her voice louder and says, of course I understand, Miles. If Walter Cronkite wants you to read a chapter of his manuscript, you have to go. And she gets to the door, opens it, doesn't realize he's still there and slams the opening door in his face. <laughs> just just beautiful, beautiful comedy. I love that physical comedy. It's really good. Then she says, I'll save you a piece of cake and shoves him out. I knew exactly what she was about to say next. Because it's a trope, but it's so satisfying. So she slams the door, walks back in. That man never stops working, laughs, and keeps going into the party. She's your homegirl. You know what I mean? She is the person you go to for advice. She's the one who can get you out of a room. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, she doesn't have it all together, but she has it together enough that she is the one that's going to have your back. And that's what we love about her. Yeah, it may not be a clean solution, but she'll get the job done. Yeah, straight up. Mm -hmm. And even later in the episode, you see her where she's like going to tell Miles, like, you're good. You know, you're okay. It doesn't work out, but, you know. She tries. But, like, that's your homegirl, like, that has your back. Mm Mm-hmm. Cut to uh, Miles just sort of coming off the elevator like his feet are on fire, going right to Murphy's office, shutting the door. Uh, Murphy has been looking everywhere for him. She seems a little concerned about him. And Miles just really sort of paces back and forth. Um, And he's just being tortured. You know, he has to tell him the truth, even if he has to pay the price because it's the right thing to do. And this episode is really interesting because you get a sense of Miles' moral compass, Mm. which I also think kind of goes back to season one when as afraid he was of being killed by a hitman, Miles knew that the right thing to do was to not stop Murphy's story, even if it was against, you know, him living. So so this does sort of, you know, thematically, I think, key into his character. But uh, Murphy reminds him that she hates giving advice. But if he's asking her opinion, <laughs> he's like, she's like trying to get permission to be like, I'm bad at this. I'll do it if you ask me. So he says that he is asking for her advice. And that Murphy does not believe that Miles should confront Gene, that she's known Gene for a long time. And that if he knew he would say it, he wouldn't hide it. Gene knocks on the door and just walks in, which really defeats the purpose of knocking Gene. But I guess he is the boss. I guess he feels like whatever you're doing in there is my business. I guess. But goodness gracious. It's rude. Give it at least five seconds. Uh, yeah. You don't know what's happening. No. The tampons could be being discussed since we know that's that's the thing. In this- you know what? He should listen to that. He could use some awareness. That's true. Mm-hmm. Maybe there can be uh, some uh, flow charts. Flow charts. <laughs> Get it. Unintentional pun. <laughs> so Miles completely freaks out. Mr. Kinsella. Well, hey, um, I was just talking casually, talking with Murphy, just chatting about this and that casually. <laughs> like casually. casually. So he wants to know if Miles minds if he and Murphy can have a private talk. And he's like, mind, of course not. I'll, I'll just go. Go away. Goodbye, you people. <laughs> Goodbye, you people. Oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> Goodbye, you people. So fantastic. And he just runs out. Um, So uh, Murphy thinks that Jean is there to talk about her expense account, but he is not. He wants to talk about something personal about him and Lois. Murphy looks terrified of what is going to happen next. So he thinks that Lois is having an affair and has a good idea who it is. He does not say who it is. He just doesn't know how he should handle it. Uh, Should he pretend he doesn't know or should he nail the SOB to the wall? Very specific 80s character, Gene Kinsella. Yeah. Yeah. The cuckold man (laughs) and how all he wants to do is get revenge on the other man instead of talking to his wife. Which would be nice. Yeah. A lot of Mishigas would have been. I just got really Jewish all of a sudden. That was amazing. (laughs) And Murphy again goes, you know, I hate to give advice grasping for things as she's talking, but she says something really smart, actually, is that maybe it would be better for him and Lois to talk and get counseling, which is actually really good advice. Yeah. I think it's the first time ever that Murphy has given good advice. Gene agrees. But then as he exits, he runs into Frank. Frank is on his way to Iceland. Frank is not very happy. It was Gene's idea. And then we slowly start to get the feeling that Gene thinks that Frank is the one who's having an affair with his wife and not Miles. Mm-hmm. This definitely has this sort of sex farce sort of qualities to it. Mm-hmm. Actually very depth, I think, deft of telling the audience, you know, what they need to know and when they need to know it. I have to say, you know, give it some props for that. And then Frank makes the mistake of saying that he was talking to Jean's wife and how attractive she is, which just goes to show that he really thinks that there is no way that that is a bad thing to say because he doesn't see her as a viable option. Yeah. Yeah. What also is terrible is that Jean gets in the elevator, tells Frank to enjoy Iceland. It gets nippy. 
and then leaves him out there. I assumed Frank was waiting for the elevator. I mean, that's the interesting thing about Gene is even though he's a little doofy in this episode, he still is. He's a man who uses power moves. Like, I don't think you assume that you're riding the elevator with Gene. Oh, good point. So we cut to. Well, we get to find a a new uh, space that we've heard of before, but we've never seen. Miles' office. It's the first time. It is truly an 80s, 90s executive office. But also, why does the star reporter not have an office like that? He's the executive producer. As I was watching this, I, I was thinking that. And then I was like, Murphy's office doesn't even have a window. Wait a second. Her window is the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but still, it's a tiny office. It is. There's something about Murphy's scrappy quality that she wants to be there with the bullpen and where things happen. You know, she's she's got an ego, but similarly to Frank, she likes feeling like somebody who gets their, like, rolls their sleeves up, is there in the action. She's not there to be a celebrity. She's not there to be pretty. She's there to do the work. And she wants to be as close yeah. to where the work is happening. I think if she threw the hissy fit, she would have it. Sure. But she hasn't. Oh, wait. Access to the coffee machine. Also coffee. I just got it. And when the donuts come, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. a Murphy move. She wants all the stuff and all the stuff now. Yeah. Just no bathroom. The nice thing about being a woman in a misogynist world is like, there's only a few of you using it. Uh, there we go. Ah, uh, Look at that. There we go. You put the, mm, you got it. There's only a couple of them there to fight for those stalls. Unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately but yeah so it's 80s 90s glory there's like blocky leather furniture with metal accents he has a putting green which i feel like he got just because that's what you did because he you know american psycho at this moment miles is back to is to us and watching as a window washer is appearing in his window oh lloyd it stops right there and at that moment miles turns around hits his little intercom to ask nancy to get him murphy Luckily, at that very same moment, Murphy is walking through the door. He thanks Nancy as if Nancy was just that quick. He has a, a banner on the back of his door for Camp Olympus. Oh, that's what that is? Mm-hmm. I couldn't mm-hmm. read it. Yeah, it's Camp Olympus, which is a co-educational sleepaway camp in ah. uh, Parksville, New York. <laughs> Look at you. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Also, I realized I forgot to mention for the first time in a long time, we could read Murphy's dartboard. Yes. Yes. It says breakfast not served after 11 a.m. And I'm so with Murphy on that. Yeah. Yep. I hate that. I wanted all breakfast all the time. I actually did have <laughs> breakfast for lunch today. That's real. I wanted hash browns, damn it. I'm Irish. I need potatoes. <laughs> Give me potatoes. So she comes in and is clearly on a mission, but Miles in his way in most of the time, but also especially in this episode, is not picking up the cues that she's throwing at him. And he comes around the desk and launches at her, saying he's thanking her for saving his tail. He had just been sitting there thinking about how much he loves his job. I love the idea that he was sitting there watching Lloyd come down, thinking about how much he loves his job and how easily it could have gone away. She tries to interject, but he keeps going. And he says she's right. Kinsella doesn't ex- suspect a thing. He's sure of it now. He would have told him to his face. He would have fired him on the spot. To which she finally talks over him and says, Miles, he knows. Oh, God, I knew it. (laughs) And we're back to tiny voice. And he darts away from her, says, of course he knows. He could see right through him. He might as well be wearing a shirt that says, hey, Kinsella, I boinked your wife. Oh, my God. The word boinked. I love the word boinked. It's great. And it's so obviously from a time where you couldn't say f*** and you couldn't say screw. Mm. But man, boinked just brings back a lot of memory. And also (laughs) boinked is such a like a PG version of even saying like i yeah. banged your wife like there's something yeah so that's right it's not even it. banged right it's boinked it's so silly like i boinked your wife it's so miles. it's so miles so he 
in his angst, does his thing of throwing himself down upon a surface. But what I love is he bypasses his own chair, throws himself down on his knees to the right of his chair or to the left for us, and throws his head down upon the desk. Murphy comes around, sits in his chair next to him, Mm -hmm. which is just bless her um and she's just lamenting about this is why she doesn't get involved and gets gives people advice because something always goes wrong we begin this monologue from miles in which he realizes these are potentially his last few moments here and he begins his goodbyes there's no more mornings coming in to seeing what crises are on his desk and then he looks at his hands goes goodbye desk he (laughs) slowly rises and looks over to what i originally thought was going to be a book bookshelf or something and Seth starts walking toward, and this is when we see the fraternity paddle on the wall. The paddle of a fraternity is such a specific symbol. It's very intriguing to me that Miles has the paddle. It's it's interesting we're in this episode where he's like kind of, we're questioning like his virility. Because that symbol and being in a fraternity is such a machismo thing. Yeah. yeah. Like the fact that somebody like Miles would hang that up on the wall as something that people would see when they come into his office really feels like a compensation. Agreed. Like, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm a I'm a dude bro yeah he's always trying to be a bro but he's not a bro no i wonder what role he played in that fraternity right it's funny. <laughs> like miles i don't think God bless him, but he's not one of the boys and as he's walking past the the paddle it says goodbye kitchenette with a self-cleaning oven which i was like dang <laughs> that's a nice kitchenette mm-hmm. i want one <laughs> i was like dang my couch someone came to me with a book this thick full of fabric pieces so i could and it's too much for him he is verklempt goodbye couch and just touches it. And then he turns and there's a window washer. And he goes, ah, and there's Lloyd washing my windows every month like he has for the 14 months I've been here. Yet again, I love these moments where we're reminded the amount of time that has passed in the series we have watched. Yeah, no, it's yeah. great. Yeah. Because he'd already been there when we started the show. So season one and us uh, so far in season two has been less than 14 months. And he does this like, he doesn't fully extend his arms, but he just kind of reaches his hands toward the window and says, I love you, Lloyd. <laughs> and Murphy goes, why do I get the feeling Kissinger is going to walk through the door and you're going to pray together? That's also <laughs> a very good joke, except, of course, I went, that's Nixon, right? And then I Googled and I was like, it's Nixon. OK, it's a Nixon joke. Yep. yep. <laughs> and Miles does this moment when he says the phrase, think, think, think. I have to assume is just Grant discovering in rehearsal where he taps his fist on Murphy's head. Oh my God, it's great. Almost like a Winnie the Pooh moment of like, think, 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 but he does it on the top of her head. She just looks so miffed. It's a great piece of physical comedy between the two of them. It's those great moments where you're like, that is Grant and Candace clearly finding things in rehearsal. And uh, he goes, all of a sudden he goes, you know, don't you, Murphy? Please tell me, please, please, please. She knows that Kinsella respects honesty. So maybe if he comes clean and confesses, she's not saying to do it, just that it's an option that exists in the universe. No responsibility. No, re- she, it's not no responsibility. Fault. It's not her fault. But of course, he's like jumping on that little bone. So he says, it makes sense. It shows that he's being brave enough to come clean. He's going to do it. Thank you for the advice and goes into hug her to which she goes, it's not advice. And she just grimaces <laughs> over his shoulder. And we cut to... We cut to Phil's. Although the the scene does not start where it actually starts in the episode itself. Mm-hmm. But apparently um, Murphy's been looking for Miles and Phil said he was here about an hour ago hugging people. And he almost got killed at a table of Teamsters. Oh, God. <laughs> Obviously, that's when Gene arrives and Phil is being all nice and you know, telling him that, you know, this seat is good for privacy and maybe he wants a special meatloaf because he doesn't get it at home. He means the meatloaf. 
Uh, so it's very obvious that, that, that Phil knows. So Murphy feels that she knows why Jean wants to talk to her and she and is shocked and happy to find out that Miles did not actually speak with Jean today. But Jean wanted to tell her that he's done a lot of thinking and she was right and he and Lois were growing apart and he took out on her turning 60. Um, they got to talking and they're going to seek counseling and let sleeping dogs lie. It seems very unbelievable to me based on the gene that we've known, but great. Good for Miles. Mm -hmm. uh, Murphy's glad to hear it. And then she says that she's going to go speak with my and then stops herself before saying Miles and adds in Jim. Sometimes I call him my Jim. <laughs> my Jim. I do, too. I was going to say, right? That's really that should be on the back of your That's mug. That's my damn line. <laughs> my Jim. <laughs> Just as she's about to sort of run off, Miles comes in with a huge amount of confidence. Oh, buddy. His, it, I think his entire chest is literally puffed out. And then there's a whole situation where every time one person wants to stay, the other person wants to go. It's actually a really great piece of physical business that I think ends with a great button. Jean, Jean is going to stay. And then Murphy says that she's going to stay. So then Jean and Miles are going to go. And then Murphy stays. And they're all sitting up and sitting down and sitting down. And then Miles just cannot take it anymore. And he says, stop this because he gets what Murphy's doing. And he admits, he just blurts out, I had an affair with your wife. To which then there's a comic pause. And then everybody sits down. Yeah. And I wrote, well done. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. So Miles inserts to kind of ramble. He didn't mean affair. Because, yeah, this is not an affair. That's a word that's being thrown around. But although, honestly, we don't know if Lois has been doing this a lot. I have a feeling she does this a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, he rambles on about how he enjoyed talking to her. In fact, he literally says the word enjoyed her very much, to which Murphy just lowers her head and puts her hand on her forehead. And Gene is very impressed. You know, he thinks Silverberg is amazing, that he would have the courage to say this to him. But it's not in his job description to take the heat for a soulless parasite like Frank Fontana, who is guilty as sin. <laughs> to which Miles goes, Frank? And Murphy goes, Fontana? <laughs> <laughs> because how could Gene believe that his wife would fool around with a kid who looks like he got out of high school? <laughs> little that you know, Gene. So accurate. Mm -hmm. Right? He's really in his own little world and not paying any attention to what his wife needs. Uh, Miles looks at Murphy and he's so upset. Murphy is in shock. Gene can tell that they like Frank. He obviously doesn't seem to understand why, but he tests very well with women, 18 to 49. <laughs> he's uh, going to close the book. And just, I feel like just when you think that Miles is going to confess, he says that he's wrong about Frank, Frank. Frank. Frank's been under a lot of pressure lately. Sure, what he did was wrong. And then I'm pretty sure that what Miles is saying is about himself. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. Like he's he's kind of yeah, confessing yeah. in a way without confessing mm -hmm. that he's been under a lot of stress, that he believes deep down inside he's a decent person. Maybe it's his insecurities that made him do the kind of things he does or basically that or he has to cut MSG out of his diet, which we've talked about is not a thing. <laughs> and so what's also sort of great is that it's a little subtle moment, but I think that this is Miles's art. Yeah. Is that in this moment, he's realizing that what he did did not make him a bad person, mm -hmm. which yeah. I think is lovely, actually, you know? Because he didn't know. Yeah, he, he didn't have. know. But also when he didn't know, he also felt like a bad person. You were two consenting adults. It does not make you a bad person. You are not going to hell for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Miles also wants to comment that we all know that Frank's mother is insane, but that <laughs> Frank is in therapy and with their support, he thinks that he can turn his life around. And Jean calls Miles a prince. <laughs> now, what's interesting is that the next scene also cuts off a beginning. Oh. Where Jean and Frank actually run into each other at the elevator, just like before. Oh, do tell. Frank says that it wasn't too bad. You know, he'll be thawing out soon. And then Jean tells him, maybe he'll think about that again next time he gets hot. <laughs> 
And then we get into the scene that we know. So yeah, the scene cuts immediately in the moment in which Miles attack hugs Frank with, you're back. And Frank is clearly just walked in. He's holding multiple bags. He has his parka on. And he goes, well, gee, Miles, I'm glad you missed me, but this is like we're dating. And this is where we get a, a quote of Frank's name, which is on one of our stickers. Frank, Frankie, Franco. Listen, you ever felt so bad about something? So guilt-ridden that you look into, into a mirror and all you see is a garden slug? No, usually I see Sister Mary Catherine holding a ruler. And that's when I wrote, man, I love seeing Jewish guilt and Catholic guilt going toe-to-toe in trope. <laughs> it's truly like, hi, guys. As somebody who is neither, but has grown up with many friends of both, I'm like, yes, I have watched this conversation while I sit back with a beer at a bar while the two argue over who has more guilt. So Miles shares with Frank that he has a little surprise for him and holds up a pair of keys. And I forgot how this episode ends. So at first I was like, is he giving him like a new sports car? Like, did something happen to the sports car while he was in Iceland? Yeah, that was my first thought, too since he had such car issues. Right? I was like, oh no, what happened to the car? He says, here, this is for you. It's a key to my office. I mean, your office. I want you to have it. The kitchen, which we know is very special. The microwave, the private bathroom, all of it. All is Frank's now. Frank stands there for a second, just wants to know what's going on. And that is the moment in which Murphy just swans by in an outfit that I absolutely wore the other day, which is like olive pants, gray turtleneck, turquoise necklace and a sweater over that i feel so represented by this moment as she passes by she just stops and says don't look a gift horse in the mouth or in this case a gift stallion and she says it with such disgust (laughs) it very much feels like the like a sister who learned about her brother's sex life and did not want to know i feel like this is frank's journalistic integrity here where he just does Mm -hmm. not trust what's happening and she's like why are you being so nice to me And I was like, what? I can't say thanks, Frank. Thanks for being a good reporter. Thanks for being my friend. Come on, let's go look at it. Sort of show you around. And starts to try and lead him toward the elevator. Frank's like, I'm dying. I'm dying or I'm fired. Or my mother is visiting. (laughs) Nice little callback. Miles, as they're entering the elevator, or as they're waiting for the elevator, says, you know, there are some very interesting things that happened while Frank was away. Elevator opens, they step in. And I'm going to tell you all about him. The thing I want you to keep in mind is when you look at the big picture, it all worked out in the end. (laughs) And the episode ends with the doors closing on Frank looking very nervous and confused. I have to say, at least he's going to tell Frank. Yep. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised we never hear the full fallout of this again. Also, it's funny. I always remember Gene hating Frank. Uh And I thought that it was like, through the entire series and I want to look back now and see if it really starts after this Mm -hmm. because I just thought he didn't like him to begin with but I'm starting to think I think it might be just after this yeah yeah Yeah. so in general what did you think of the episode Lisa I mean it's fun yeah they had good physical comedy in it you know overall (laughs) Miles is so darn cute (laughs) and you know it's just you see this like roller coaster of up and down of him, of the whole Jewish guilt, but probably is not the guilt, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Um, but at the same time, like him being this wild sex animal, you know, which he probably wasn't. He probably, you know, it's like one of those memes that, uh, you know, you order some, you see something online and it looks like luxurious and great. Mm. And then you order it and you get it in. <laughs> you know, in the mail and it's actually looks like it, but not really. Yep. 
And that's like kind of like probably what's going on in his mind that he's just this wild, you know. That's true. Uh, we never hear from Lois. No. We never hear from Lois how she felt on her end. I was like, how yeah. he go? could have no clue. <laughs> Yeah. They did do it more than once is the impression, mm -hmm. right? So unless they kept moving around, which seems a little difficult. So I assumed that meant that they did it more than once. I agree. Yeah, I think they clearly yeah. did it more than once. Yeah, because they did it all over the room. I feel so like I guess this, maybe she did like yeah, it. Yeah, I feel like he, I well, I feel like Lois unlocked something in Miles that was very exciting for both of them. It's true. Mm -hmm. You have a more experienced partner mm -hmm. and one who may also ask you about your needs because you are more experienced and you know now to do that. He may not be used to that. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it heightened the experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so overall, yeah, I, I you know, it's, it's a fun episode. Yeah. It, it's not as in depth as maybe some of the other episodes are, yeah. but, um, but it's a fun episode at, at, at the end of the day. I wish there was more quirky in it, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. but it was a fun episode. It's yeah. one of the few times this happens to us a lot, Lisa, where we watch an episode and we're like, Oh, I, don't like this episode as much as I thought I did, or I forgot about this episode and actually it's really great. This is one of the few episodes where I'm like, mm. it hits about where I remembered it. Mm. Like I don't yeah, mm. same. Yeah. dislike it, but it's not my favorite. Um, but I'm not like, we've had several where I'm like, yeah. Oh my gosh, this episode is amazing. How did I forget about it? This one was like, yeah, the, I, I have about the same yeah. reaction afterwards where it's like, I'm glad I saw some of these interactions, but the plot and, and so I didn't, you know, blow me away like others have. And I see why yeah. this probably when they pitched it was like, oh, this is a great obstacle for someone like Miles. Yeah. And also it fits into a very specific trope, which also, by the way, trying to find more information on this trope of the older woman, younger man, graduate type thing. The Mrs. Robinson thing. Exactly. So apparently uh, the whole thing about women being in their sexual prime, mm -hmm. perhaps like above 35, may not actually be a real thing. That it is sort of personal. I mean, I feel like, Jesse, you know a lot about the Kinsey scale than I mm -hmm. do. So please mm -hmm. correct me on this. But that it's based on the Kinsey scale because they asked women at certain ages how many orgasms they had. Yeah. And more women had orgasms over the age of 35. But that could just be that you know yourself better. Yeah, you start yeah. asking. You're comfortable. You know to ask exactly what you want. You know what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that blew my mind that it was totally hypocrisy. Well, the thing is... The data with which they made these <laughs> these discoveries is mm -hmm. so not a control, like number mm -hmm. of orgasms. True. There are so many factors that go into that and that can affect yeah. how you like that is not a controlled variable whatsoever. So it makes sense. And also, yeah, the older we get and this is, I think, probably throughout time, but the older we get, especially nowadays, I think that number would be very different because as empowered females the older we get the more we know our body and also and know what we want and ask for it but also nowadays yeah. we are in an age where we are destigmatizing female pleasure so that women yes. are younger yeah. and younger being able to experiment and find that on their own before they even have a sexual partner so therefore we have younger women yeah. when they become sexually active already are more empowered and know how to get what they want so that that as the the data to determine is probably very different now. Yeah. Point, yeah. Yeah. And more, we're more accepting of our own bodies. Like that's starting to become a thing where we appreciate. And as you get older, like you're like, well, I'm stuck in this sucker. So I might as well appreciate and like this thing, you know? So, you know, that may also play a role. Well, and also the, it's not that long ago that the idea of a woman having sex for pleasure and not just to procreate mm. was a 
crazy concept. Yeah. Like, that's definitely within living generations. <laughs> so do you want to tell the audience where they can or cannot find you? <laughs> oh, I am social media terrible. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Dart and Lisa. I'm a little hard to find on Facebook, but I am a board member at the Fair Housing Justice Center. So you can always contact us at the Fair Housing Justice Center. If you're having any kind of issues with housing discrimination, we do a full gamut from race to um, discrimination for families or people with disabilities. So if you feel like you're being discriminated against, you can contact the Fair Housing Justice Center. Um, We're located on Long Island City um, here in New York. So you can Google us and, and get the number if you feel like you need some help with that. Awesome. Please come back. I would love to do more episodes. Likewise. And have a quirky episode. Oh, Let's I would do love it. To have you on a quirky This episode. is so much fun. <laughs> we do we do love quirky. Oh, yeah. I would love to come back. And we'll see you soon for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Yay! I'm gonna stop recording. So nice to meet you. Thank you for being woke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's our tag. Okay. That's We're our, gonna bring them into the fold. That's our bumper. <laughs> I came back and I was like, oh, um, and everyone's gone. <laughs> oh my God. We're done. We left you. We're yeah. done. It's about the quarter. Episode done. <laughs> <laughs>